0: really good, everybody. This is Nathan Albach, and welcome to the podcast where we get into people's stories and go down a bunch of rabbit holes about what's really good in the world. Today's guest is Jared Bias. Jared is a former professor and the current co-host of the Bible for Normal People podcast, along with Pete Enns, whom he also co-wrote the book Genesis for Normal People with a few years back. They're just all about normal people like us, you know? I uh, met Jared in 2010 at this community project he was collaborating on that I helped book some songwriters for, and afterward I became a big fan of his, just his blogging and social media presence in general. He's someone who's always innovating and dipping his hands in different cool projects, so it was great getting to sit down with him here. We got a bit into his personal story and the work he's doing with His and Pete's podcast, We touched on topics of belief, um, privilege, labeling, linguistics, uh, postmodernism, and the book. He's in the process of writing about truth. Jared is one of the most nuanced thinkers I know, so I'm always interested to hear how he's navigating the tension between spaces, whether they be belief and non-belief or progressivism and conservatism. I just really believe that having people like him who are consciously aware of this is so important in how we improve our conversations about the issues that matter. And I hope you share some of that sentiment and enjoy our conversation. Now let's get into what's really good. Jared Bias, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: You're very welcome.
0: So I'll have given the people a little bit about yourself before all of this, but just for the sake of your story and how you wish to be perceived, <laughs> do you want to give a little bit about nice. like how you got into what you do and um, just a little bit of your background?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's like such a cynical social media thing to say. Right? Like, I got to get your soundbite. How, like, perce- how you perceive... <laughs> Whenever you're thinking of others perceiving you, how would you want that to look?
0: Which is like all of podcasting. This is all (laughs) we're putting out how we want to be
1: perceived. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you you don't understand the magic of it is you don't name that. It's true. Once you you name the reality... I'm
0: breaking the fourth wall.
1: Exactly. You're pulling the rug out from under (laughs) us. So, uh, yeah. How do I want to be perceived? I don't know. I I just... uh, I think what I'm most passionate about is conversation and connection and... All the uh, taboo ways in which i we we sort of uh interfere with that, I think you know i I'm just I was just thinking about this um, this morning because I was doing something else with a, a podcast about how truth can get in the way of mm. connection, and uh, it's so interesting because we think it's like truth is the way to connection with other people, but oftentimes it's like an idol or kind of gets in the way so yeah, kind of breaking down the barriers of connection and um yeah, so I think that I'm passionate about being able to be in relationship with people um, in all different ways. So, Right.
0: Yeah, it's interesting just because I know a lot of the stuff that you're involved in, the stuff that we've talked about in the past, it revolves around, like you mentioned, the communicative arts and also spirituality and questions of philosophy and theology. So when you kind of get into the nitty gritty of a lot of that i think some people check themselves at the door when they hear like certain terms and they lose i think they lose uh interest because of the labeling like they lose interest because they're not they either have assumptions or have had assumptions or experiences that either deter them away from like these ways that we communicate or something of that nature so i know like that's the kind of the heart of a lot of what you get mm-hmm. into. So it's interesting to think about like how you are putting yourself out there, but like you have to do, you kind of do have to think about like how you're being perceived and how you're perceiving others with these topics. Oh, absolutely. Topics, yeah.
1: Right? I, I mean, because yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think, yeah, sometimes people won't listen to you. I mean, it's just kind of the world we live in. Like yeah. if you get pegged with a certain label, you're no longer, you don't have an audience with you yeah. anymore. And, uh, it's just re- for me, I care more about being able to connect with someone than being able to accurately label myself so. yeah
0: so like jumping in to just kind of what what I know about you and maybe what some of the audience does or doesn't know about you like we we grew up in similar communities from like a geographical standpoint, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty conservative area, like both um politically and theologically, so growing up for you kind of whenever you hit that uh that arc to your story i guess where you started to pique different interests and get into different modes of being and thought like what has it been like for you the past several years or decades in kind of balancing that tension out where you come from one label and now you're kind of slapping on another label and now you're trying to navigate in between all these these things that people are pegging on you mm-hmm. like what's that tension been like
1: yeah, I think one thing I would say is my personality. I'm, I'm an eight on the enneagram, so it helps in that way because I just don't like labels in general. Cause, yeah, because I just I guess it's just my personality. I'm like, don't label me. Yeah, I'm one Rebel. of a. I'm one of a kind. <laughs> uh, so that actually helps because I don't get a lot of. I don't think my ego is fed. I don't get a lot of uh, sense of belonging or connection from be participating in labels Mm. so that that helps i think a lot of people that brings them a lot of comfort and it helps them feel like they belong and it brings them some confidence that they're not alone and and that's great but i think that just how i was built is not it's not that important to me yeah so that helps because then i can i can navigate different you know different arenas and i'm always just i'm extremely curious so I'm a very curious person. So I think of it as I I can navigate all different kinds of communities because I'm really interested in understanding people, mm. and um, and less interested in being understood. I, I mean I think that's important in in some situations, but I'm yeah my journey is much more about understanding. And uh, yeah, so so it wasn't too too hard. I don't think I think I'd naturally shy away from labeling my thought process as like, now I'm this, now I'm that. Right. Um, so that, that's helped, although people do want to paint you in that corner. Like, yeah. no, just tell me, are you a Calvinist or not? Like, <laughs> are you a Christian or not? Um, yeah. and, and I get that because it helps people to feel what they're really saying is, I want to make sure I'm in and I use you as a foil for that, so if you d- identify as in or out, it helps me understand whether I'm in or right. out, and and I understand that I respect it. Um, yeah. I just resist it. It's interesting because
0: I think a lot of what people mean when they get into that sort of box creating uh, mindset is that so many of the issues that we t- we see today are like they revolve around policy issues, and they result they revolve around social. Um, Issues and debates between one party and another party so when they see one person like espousing certain rhetoric toward like one party's belief system then that's sort of the the area that they want to paint you in totality within so Mm -hmm. what like when it comes to actually. I say you're a very nuanced guy, so like you're always trying to bring the nuance into the conversation. (laughs) So how do you how do you balance being a nuanced and curious person amidst these different tribal identities, while at the same time knowing like when to put your foot down, like when to stand for like what you believe is just and right, and not in a way that is neglecting or isolating or putting down the other in your
1: life. Yeah, it's interesting. I I would say I'm not. I I'm not a master of that for sure, but it's interesting that when you are really about understanding someone, how much more tolerant they are of your differences. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I haven't really had to compromise that really? um in a lot of ways. Wow. Like if I spend I it, it kind of like a I don't know, seven to ten seven out of ten ratio. Like if I spend seventy percent of my time just trying to understand you and being curious and connecting and yeah. saying, I totally get it. I understand why you would think that. Yeah. That thirty percent where I'm like, that's wonderful. I, I would just think of it differently. Here, let me explain a little bit how I would see it differently. Um then then that goes a long way. So that's like that 30%. And so I think it's an investment in a relationship an investment in a a genuine way. Like I'm not investing 70% of my time understanding you just so I get my 30%. Right. It's just, I genuinely want to know where you stand. I want to understand the whole compendium and how you fit and how does that connect with all these other things. And then at the end, I've, for me, I've just found that people are really receptive when I say, well, yeah, I, I just disagree. And I, I'm going to, behave in this way rather than that way another thing i don't know if this is connects at all but i also think we just make too much of belief right as like a mental assent, and it, it's like it's funny to me because it's like doesn't it's not real yeah like if you took a video camera of people who disagree on these things and you just follow them around like their life largely would look pretty similar yeah and that was really important for me when i realized that like because I had certain fundamental beliefs, and then I switched, and I actively thought, like, okay, if I switch this belief about hell or something like that, like, how is that actually going to change my life? Right. And it, it frankly, it didn't. Yeah, cause it's so
0: abstract. Like yeah. I think about this all the time with yeah. my friends who I do disagree with vehemently about whatever issue. How when you're in the same room as them, I think, I think it comes down on one end to the sort of philosophical question of the whole thing, where it's like, what. Like how do our beliefs like guide you know the the ethical framework of the world? Right. Like like what sort of beliefs do we want to like progress uh, our culture with? And those are questions that you know they're worth asking. They're they're, mm-hmm. they're worth talking about within these conversations. But when it comes down to a lot of the the opinions, like the the opinions within the beliefs, where it's like okay, we both maybe believe there's a god, or maybe we both believe there isn't a god. And that's the sort of broader framework that we can look at. But then when you get to the nitty-gritty of just, do I believe this happened literally? Or do I believe this, like, one uh, passage of this holy text is the, a very defining one for mm-hmm. my belief code. Like, these are the things that, yeah, they become much more abstract right. when you deal like, with the day-to-day grind of just going to work and being with your family and getting to know your friends. Like, they're not as... In your face, I right. guess, unless they become weaponized right. politically. Right. So, like, they have the potential, I guess, if someone extracts it. Yeah, but then they
1: become something else. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. They're, they're not just beliefs at that point. And yeah. so, that, I mean, I think, the only, only thing I would challenge is even those, you know, you talked about we both believe in God or don't. I, I, for me, the, just the, what, what do we mean when we say we believe something? Mm. I think I would challenge that idea. Because in the in the last 300 years, what we've come to mean, and I think we're too obsessed with this idea, is I click it off in my mind and say, mm-hmm, I believe that. Right. That's literally what it means. Yeah. I just, I think about it and I say, mm-hmm, I believe that. Yeah. I don't know what the value of that is. I don't yeah. know, like, could could belief also mean something else? Like. And this is where I'm big on, you know, some people say uh, I used to probably five, seven years ago, I said it quite a bit. But someone would say, like, what do you believe about this? And I would actually say, I don't know. Um, you have to ask my friends and you have to ask my family. Like, they will right. tell you like way more accurately what I believe. I can tell you what I wish I believed or what I think I believe or what I want to believe. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the people who see me interacting with the world every day are going to be able to tell you better what I actually believe.
0: Yeah. It's like um, how you're living because yeah. these beliefs, they become, yeah, like it's, they become compartmentalized in the back of yeah. your head, like a padded answer to something that doesn't really ever reach the surface of mm-hmm. anything. And yeah. it's interesting, too, how. Like, even just the definitions of saying I believe in God or I don't believe in God, if that's, like, the the sort of micro Mm -hmm. example we're working with, even that, like, the word belief, like you mentioned, the way we define it, there's also people who define it as I know. Like, people equate belief with knowing, which is a super weird thing because it's, like, it's in the definition, I feel, like, of belief. It's, like, a it's sort of like the word faith. Like, Mm -hmm. when someone says, like, I have faith that this will happen, it's, like, I have hope this will happen, I believe this will happen. These are things that you are putting some kind of... Like, just in the the name of the definition, it seems like you're putting a chance in there that this mm-hmm. is not yeah. possible. Like, a, this risk. This may, yeah, there's risk that it may not lot. happen. Yeah. But it, a lot of people don't live their lives to that, with the meaning of it. You know what I mean? Right. They live as if it is a fact, as if it is absolute, as if it is, you know, untouchable, almost, mm-hmm. when you get into these, not, not just religious, like you, politically, like oh, we're yeah. saying, like it, it translates into people's entire, it's like a almost like a virus, mm-hmm. like when you start fundamentally with someone, like if if your starting point is God, or your starting point is the Democratic Party, or whatever, like name an issue, like a big, big issue that like helps create the underbelly of someone's moral framework, when you start there with, this is The way it is. That's what I think creates this weird um, toxic environment where people are unable then to to allow this space for curiosity and wanting to Mm -hmm. understand why someone believes what they believe. Because then it's just about... There's just a right and there's a wrong. There's not right. this open space for curiosity and the what ifs and yeah. what do you believe about?
1: Are you saying are you saying absolutes create toxicity? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Did I just hear you say Did that? Did this right? just become a postmodern <laughs> podcast? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. How many podcasts have been done where it's just two people going off about like relative truth and absolute truth? <laughs> yeah. Well, it is interesting. It is interesting that way because it is it, it becomes I think a lot of what you're what you're teetering on here does come down to the fundamental question too of free will, which is something that I've been coming back to a lot where for myself, that was a big tipping point in how I viewed other people's rhetoric and where they were coming from on any given issue. Whereas before. I kind of always believed, okay, yeah, like temperament has something to do with it. You know, your life experiences have something to do with it. You, these are abstract notions I held in my head. But when I really started piecing together, like, no, if I was born in this other country or this other region, I would believe, like, whatever it would be, the common held belief in that region. And when you get to that point, you start to think, what? how much does the free will of my own beliefs come into play when I am... Interacting with somebody else here, because like we're on just different cognitive levels of each thing that we believe, so like how do you even define truth in that way, like where do you start
1: yeah well, one thing I would again you, you talked about me as being nuanced I, I wouldn't normally do this, but since it's your podcast and not mine <laughs> I'll, I'm gonna just I'm be honored. super nuanced <laughs> uh is even I would just even challenge you said if I were in this country, I would believe. So you just made an absolute statement. Right. I would probably right. I it, said. It, and I I think that's the point though, is that we have to rel- it, it is like the more we learn about the world, the more we understand that almost almost everything is probabilistic. Yeah. So and I think I, I think it's important because when we're not clear about that, I think that's where a lot of arguments come from. Mm. Because I can just imagine you saying that to someone uh maybe who has a different framework and they'd be like no well i have an example of someone who did grow up in this right. and they exactly. came out of it exactly. and so you're wrong and now like the, just whole the whole thing down. yeah exactly yeah so when you when you prob you know when you make it probabilistic it's it's helpful because it allows it it allows for that uh that shifting and the exceptions and but we're talking percentages here, like yeah. 90%. Chance. I mean, m- all of our life is, is probabilistic yeah. in that way. That's the so. weird
0: thing about talking and nuance in general, because to a certain degree, when you're so nuanced and even little statements like that, You lose a lot of the punch and what you're trying to say. That's right. And when you lose the punch, you lose your audience. You lose your book deal. You lose all of these. Welcome (laughs) to the
1: state of uh, American media right now. You just nailed it. Yeah, it's just
0: it's so I I find myself doing this all the time on Twitter. Like I'll be on Twitter and I'll have an idea like the one, the example that we just went back and forth mm -hmm. on and I'll go to tweet it and i start to you know pick it apart and try to add a nuance to it and before i know it the tweet isn't saying anything and no one is going to care it's That's not right. going like, to a tease right. to anybody yeah. And, yeah it's such a it's such a difficult thing to navigate it's hard to know i think for people who try to live more in that mindset of looking at things carefully and wording things carefully it's hard for people who do that to also then plant your feet down and know how to go about Um, being public about what you believe and, like, how strongly you feel about those things.
1: Well, I think if you keep in mind just knowing that you're trying to do different things. Not every communicative act is doing the same thing. Like, I'm trying to get to the accuracy of a statement, and I'm with the person who... Which is why I said I would nitpick with you on that. Right. Because I have a podcast for normal people. I would never do that. <laughs> Literally for normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what it's called. So like I would never do that because that's not the purpose of that podcast. Right. And so I have to be always aware in that public sense of my communication acts. Like what am I trying to do here? Yeah. Is it is it to evoke emotion? If it is, then I may not nuance something. And then for the people who our you know sticklers they'll come at me and then we'll have a nuanced conversation yeah um so it's just knowing it and it's always a risk like you know you're always um i think i don't know remember it's derrida or or Deleuze, but i was talking about uh like the truth is always over seeping it's, mm. it's always bigger than the thing you're trying to do and you just yeah. have to accept that and so we're always kind of cookie cutter being reality mm. and there's always leftovers on the outside you just have to if you're intentional and aware of that, you can kind of choose what the leftovers are.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, yeah, I would just say, you know, it's not like right or wrong. It's just being aware of what you're trying to communicate and then choosing the right medium for that. Right. So
0: one of the issues that I've been dealing with recently, because I'm a long time podcast listener and just someone who I love engaging in this, this medium, particularly like around different uh, influences of mine, like from... Not far right and not far left, but sort of like moderately left and moderately right, it's like from the center-ish, I would say. And the past seven or so years of kind of going back and forth, like as the pendulum kind of swings depending on where you're at in life, you know, mm-hmm. going back and forth on that, one of the patterns I pick up on that, I feel like nowadays especially, it's becoming more and more talked about. It's almost almost to a cliche at this point where people talk about echo chambers and they talk about how... How do you deal with, like, your tribalism? You know, it's like these are buzzwords now in, like, the age of Trump and fake news and, like, all the the media polarization going on. So I'm interested to know from your perspective and your experience podcasting, like, you're in this sort of—you're in this world of whatever you want to call it. Like, partially these curious, nuanced uh, people who are trying to expand their worldview. And then Mm -hmm. you have also people who I think are more in that— Uh, progressive ideology or um, like more like they were they've been disenfranchised in some way by fundamentalism or Christianity in some capacity so how do you like in the process of the past like year or so of you guys doing the podcast like how do you manage um, not just like falling back into repeating same content and like putting out the same stuff and like what you know people just want to hear every week Mm -hmm. because obviously you want to give them what they they need like you're feeding them a product so there's like that part of it which you can't just (laughs) give them what they don't want obviously but how do you like navigate not just allowing yourself to become the thing that you hate almost like like just becoming like another team like another tribe right you know have you thought about that at
1: all uh Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think about i'm a little obsessive about thinking about things so (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm thinking how do we do that intentionally with i mean One thing is we are committed to being constructive and that's important because I think the trope or the the thing we can fall back into is being identified by what we're against. Right. Uh, When a lot of people come out of like a more fundamentalist religion, I think they can just have a lot of anger and there's a time and space for that and we do not want to minimize that, but we don't want to be that space necessarily. We want to be a safe place for people who are there, but we're personally not going to engage in that as much. So I think that's really... I think it's important that we we always have an, an eye toward constructivism. Like, how do what what's what are the steps forward? What does faith look like beyond this? Rather than still being trapped, whether it's positive or negative, by sort of fundamentalism, whether you're reacting against it or anything, you're still revolving around it. And mm-hmm. so, keeping an eye on that helps us be, get more creative and imaginative um, in that way. And and I think the product we're selling is actually not an ideology but, uh, methodology. Mm. And I think that helps as well so that we're not, for me at least, like I'm interested in bringing tools of critical thought and helping people take that next step, whatever that looks like. Right. Um, and so we're not really selling a product as much as a process, I guess. Mm. And that helps.
0: Yeah. It's interesting just to think about, I guess Richard Dror puts it this way. A lot of, people in this sphere put it the way of there's the sort of stages where you go through constructing mm-hmm. your ego identity beliefs and then you go through the deconstruction process and then the reconstructing process so it's interesting to see, like what kind of feedback are you getting from i guess like the fringes or like outside of of what you're producing so like on both ends like do you get feedback from like more conservative minded uh, individuals who like are getting something from this podcast and then also the more deconstructionist how how's that been like navigating like the different
1: so would you are you thinking of people who would say they they enjoy the podcast from the different angles or yeah yeah i was i I guess
0: i'm I'm saying yes like from an enjoy perspective i just mean like getting i'm interested to know like what people are saying in uh feedback to this like from outside of it a little bit you Mm -hmm. know what i mean like that's what i'm always interested in like i I kind of, since I started doing my podcast, I've been going out of my way to find my critics. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, I'm trying to see, like, what what it's lacking, obviously. Like, you Mm -hmm. want to know that stuff. But then I also want to make sure I'm actively seeking out people who I know wouldn't normally listen to me Mm -hmm. in this capacity. Like, there's a couple people that I can think of off the top of my head off Twitter that that have reached out to me. We've talked a bit about the podcast. And the type of content that I'm putting out would be definitely left of center, generally speaking. So... There's been a few people who are not of that. Like they don't listen to that type of content. So I'm like always going going to them for feedback and like what they feel like I could have done better or like what they're enjoying from it. Like what what kind of um, what are some of the bridges, I guess, I could say that you've been building that you feel that have really done that for those uh, fringe people that listen?
1: Yeah, I think that's a a good question. Um, Well, I. A lot of my family would be different than me, Mm -hmm. and that's helpful because I feel like every podcast I'm very aware of, like, I'm not going to say anything that's just going to score points with the people who agree with me at the expense of my family. Right, yeah. That's – I don't know. I just think that's a jerk thing to do. So I'm always mindful of that. And so I have really good friends who are on a different spectrum. So I I think I have, like, personas – I have, like, maybe three or four personas that are represented by, like, a close friend who would be really fundamentalist, my family. And I actually kind of keep those in mind mm-hmm. every podcast of, like, what would they think about that? What would they yeah. think about that? What would they think about that? And in a way that, again, like I talked about earlier, it's not that they would disagree with me. It's just that they wouldn't get their hackles up because I was, like, emotionally dismissive or a jerk. It's more about the posture than the content. Yeah. Um. So I've, you know. I think yeah, we can disagree and that's fine. And people could even be angry at it, but they'd be angry at our difference and not angry at me. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's one thing I think is uh so we yeah, we have we have people who y- you can't get away from the critics who were just like Oh
0: no, yeah.
1: one star on Apple <laughs> review because you're just spouting leftist blah blah blah. Right. It's like okay, that's fine. <laughs> um whatever. it's There's like another be that. Yeah, yeah, another fake news source or whatever. So um, and the same on, you know, the same for people on the progressive side. Sometimes you just can never be progressive enough, and exactly. you can never be conservative enough. And I'm not worried about those people. I'm worried yeah. about the people who are really thoughtful and can critique what we're doing in ways. That I'm like, oh yeah, you're that's legit. Yeah. Thank you for that.
0: Can you expand a little bit? I'm interested to know more just on this whole topic of not becoming the sort of thing that you hate, which is kind of like I think what a lot of this is centered around. It. It's like you're you're figure you're navigating new ways to talk about the issues that matter, like act like post something, like post a certain belief or post, you know, certain community way of life, whatever. And now you you don't wanna slide into some area where you're just as hateful or spiteful or deconstructing, you know, negativity constantly. So what are some of the ways you've mentioned being curious? Like what are some of the other ways that you can tangibly say for other people who would either be looking to become more public, whether it's through a podcast or posting on social media or whatever, like what are some ways that are tools I should say that people could use to not become that thing while also standing to their convictions?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think two things come to mind real quick. I'll try to say them before I forget them is one is always work on yourself. Like check your ego. I mean, there's something really powerful about, it, it feeds a need to to identify with something that we're not, right? Like, yeah. So I think that's really, um, I think that's really important. Is is always be working on yourself and checking your ego. Um, and then the second thing would be do your homework. I right. think it's just so much easier to it's just, it's easier to critique things. Yeah, it just is. So from coming from a background of philosophy, that's like I was trained to critique things. Um, it just is easier because all you're doing is pointing out what's wrong with things, yeah um, and it's yeah, it's just an easier practice, so I always joke that I had a blog that was i uh, you know i pretty prolific on for a while, like in the from like two thousand eight to two thousand eleven or twelve or thirteen or something like that, and the last blog post I ever said was, uh okay, I've committed myself now to only like writing constructively, like I'm done with the deconstructive phase. Mm. And five years later, I haven't done one post past that. Wow. Because it's just hard. Yeah. Like, whoa. Okay, now I have to recreate a world. And I just, for me, it's this bigger concept of I want to respect and I respect creators, people yeah. who create things in the world. Whether I agree with them or not, it's freaking hard to do, um, to create beautiful things that resonate with people and that resonate as true and resonate as beautiful and... um it's, it's just hard. Yeah. So I, I want to respect that. Uh, so anyway, I think doing your homework, which takes time, it just takes a long time. Like yeah. I, I'm, what, 10 years into this process and I'm just now kind of coming out with like a coherent, okay, I think that's kind of how I want to construct <laughs> things. Right. Um, and then secondly, checking that ego because it just, it's a cheap win. I mean, it's just a cheap win to do that. So.
0: Yeah. I think that's that's a pretty common thread from people I've talked to who have asked the same question where people always come back to creating. It's like you need to create something. Like it can't all be tearing down and deconstructing like you have to learn to build something out of this nothingness that you, now you have been left with with whatever belief or structure that you left behind so i mean i'm interested to know a little bit more on like what you think about like a lot of what you were just saying there how like there are those who just deconstruct and just critique and how that like it exhausted you personally like that's something that i have a lot of trouble with from a social media perspective, at least, like when I'm on Twitter, Facebook, where nowadays, and this has always this has always gone on. It's always weird to talk about this. Like, oh, nowadays it's so much worse, but it is worse nowadays. <laughs> so it's like a weird, weird contrast there. But it does feel like oh, there's a, there's certain sects of like what I would cons- just broadly label as progressive Christianity that they've. Taken to social media in the age of Trump in the age of all this um political polarization, and that they've in a lot of ways they re- they've really um developed a critique of the day the, this day and this age and Trump and the media and all this that seems very spiteful and seems very uh not productive i guess in some capacity and it is weird when I think about this, so I just want to hear what your your thoughts on it because when I think about it. You mentioned before how, you know, with your podcast, and what you do, you want to make sure you're a place for being constructed, like you want to construct something, but you still know that there's a space for the deconstructing. So we both know that there's a time and a place and that there's people, there's always, there, it's weird even talking about this in phases because there's certain people that I know, and I'm sure you know, that they got hurt or abused in some capacity by the church and that they are maybe 20, 30, 40 years into that. And they're still not past it. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's that sort of tendency for people like you and I, like we can, we can see like abstractly abuse and we can maybe say like, Oh, we've been hurt or neglected or rejected, but we don't have a full empathetic understanding of what it is to be abused on like certain levels. So, you know, there's certain people who have been hurt in a way that they aren't coming back. Like they're not, They're not getting to this like it's not like a journey for them like some people like like we like to talk about it like everything's a journey everything's phases of life. So I'm interested to know like a little bit your thoughts on it like I'm always caught in that tension between thinking about when I see certain people espousing this more spiteful hateful rhetoric. I get irritated. Like, it brushes up against me, and I think, that's wrong. Why are they doing that? That's not productive. That's ridiculous. And it, it makes me feel like, oh, like I've been saying, you're becoming the thing you hate. This is this is not a good overall um, thing to become. But then on the other hand, I think about, you know, where are they in their life and, like, what what brought them to be in that position? And I, in a lot of cases, when you do get to know them and talk to them, you find out what has happened to them. So, like, what are some of your thoughts on, like, navigating how people perceive and understand social criticism when it becomes something that looks uh, a lot like the thing that was left on the other side.
1: And mm-hmm. yeah, just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. You'd be a, a fundamentalist progressive as well. Yeah. 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 Totally. Well, I I mean, I think fundamentally I would say fundamentally funny. Um, <laughs> Good one. I just think that we, for me, Judging I just don't have a lot of energy anymore For judging other people's journeys
0: Mm.
1: Like I have enough to take responsibility For for my own existence Yeah, And so that's the first thing Is like you mentioned being irritated by that And I think I still experience that sometimes But then I'm like that's their story Why do I feel like it's my job To like police everyone Yeah, And make these universal Absolute pronouncements of what we should or shouldn't do So I like to say I try not to Should on people like so it's it's letting it—yeah, if I—and it's the difference of locality and particularity. Like, we can make general statements, that's fine, but I don't know how useful that is. And it's, like, locality, meaning I don't—these people who are saying a lot of these things, I don't know them. I don't yeah. know their story. So I'm wasting a lot of energy when a five-minute conversation might diffuse a lot of that, but I just don't have the capacity to have five-minute conversations with everyone. Exactly. So, like, I have to—I have to, I feel like, shrink my world, and I feel like a lot—like, there's this like trauma fatigue or I I hear some progressive friends of mine, like talk about this fatigue of being on social media. I'm like, yeah, it's because you're taking responsibility for things that you as an individual human being were, like, not built to try to take responsibility for. Yes. And yeah. so, and then they can, like, shame you. Like, you know, my wife isn't on Facebook because she doesn't want to read the news every day mm-hmm. and have all the bad things happening, like, right in front of her face every day. Yeah. And some people are like, what's well, your responsibility yeah, to like know. Yeah, like, she's privileged. she doesn't like, have to deal with yeah, that. Yeah, and I get yeah. that. It's just, maybe it is, but yeah. it is her journey, like. I don't think shaming people for that's going to necessarily right. work. So anyway, for me, it's, it's like do, do the good I can in the space I'm in and know the people I can know. And if someone, if I feel like a friend of mine is stuck and I feel like as a friend, it's my responsibility to say, dude, you're like self-destructing here because you can't move past this. Like go, go to a therapist, to like figure this out. I would take that responsibility because they're my friend and I know them. But I'm not going to take that responsibility for a thousand people on Twitter. It's just too. It's overwhelming. And is it privileged? Is it? I kind of don't care. I'm just like saying that's my capacity. Yeah, you can do with it what you want. (laughs) Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely the toxic environment of social media that just makes all of this so it highlights all of it so much, and it makes so much of it just unmanageable when it comes to those day to day capacities that we have to love and engage with like topics of interest like i from working on social media i'm on it all day long so i mean i i know at this point now or like there's those waves of like you have to find the time to get off and you have to really and if you don't do that like if there's periods of time where i'm just straight up neglectful of my own mental health you you reap the repercussions of what it is so Mm -hmm. it's like there's certain people that i follow online who have built entire like in this new age of social media and like the post 2016 election people have built entire careers off of you know pushing a certain political um rhetoric on social media which Mm -hmm. is insane to think about so so much of their livelihood and their identity and who they are what they believe is wrapped up in tweeting 24 hours a day about the news cycle and it's so difficult for me to like even yeah like you said like to to step into that and say something because I want to judge it. I want to say you're this is on this can't be healthy. I want to say this is wrong. This is not good. <laughs> but you can't. Like you can't like it's so difficult to have to separate the two because it feels oftentimes inseparable. It often feels that the person I am on social media is the person I am in real life. These are just my thoughts. I'm putting my thoughts from my brain the ether or whatever onto like my profile here so it's not that they're two separate mm-hmm. things i always hate when people say oh well it's like not you it's not the real you it's yeah. the real you for sure but yeah. it's this also this weird thing that you get swept away like it's easy it's like a wave that comes in you just you lose so many of the contexts that involve like just you and i sitting here face to face like that gets completely lost and when it's not and I think people brush over it when you say something like that, and they say, "Oh, of course it's face to face like that's lost it's that, but it's that times ten thousand every day, so it's not just like oh, you're losing face to face with one person like, you're losing it with everything you're losing it with the earthquake that just happened in California like mm-hmm. you you're losing it with the genocide that just happened over here, like you're losing it in every context, and when th- that's every single day that you're in this new world, like you just you don't know how to to manage I think your day-to-day relationships as well. Mm. You know, cuz it becomes then you you take that truth of like what you're used to dealing with in a certain topic or or whatever it might be and then you translate that into the people you know in real life. Like there's been multiple people I've known the past few years that have stopped talking to me or talk to me significantly less now that social media is so in our faces every day because it's things get highlighted that they can say like, oh, now I can box you in here and right. check you out there. And it's such like a strange... And then you see them in person and it's like everything's normal. Everything's like, oh, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Like, like, how have you been? And it's like it never even gets brought up in the real-life conversation. You're like, wait, this is something you tweet about this every day or you post on Facebook about this every day. Now we have this face-to-face opportunity. Don't you want to talk about it? Like... <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that it's like so much worse now, but I think it's just that we don't know how to handle people's true selves. Yeah. Like for a long time, we didn't have a mechanism to just like be so transparent. Mm-hmm. I think people still had really strong feelings and emotions, but socially we all just didn't engage that. There's a, probably a lot of factors for that, but I'm just thinking like a hundred years ago, people were still probably really opinionated about things. There's just no, like, amplification or way to be so transparent. You just didn't sit down in at dinner and start, like, spouting off, like, right. all these things. But it was still to you. Yeah. And so that I just think we—one we, we one thing I would hope is we have a better way of handling the nuance of human beings. Like, mm. that I am not—yeah. to Well, one, one thing is to, to not sort of label, like, our identities are much more fluid than I think we recognize. But secondly— like, we're just not—we're not that good yeah, as a species. <laughs> so we have this idea of, like, human beings and what it means to be a good human being. And if, if somebody tweets three or four things that doesn't line up to that, we, like, write them off. And I find that to be, you know, not to be too Jesus-y, but I find that really hypocritical. Um, like, we're all kind of, you know—I mean, I, you know, I, get, I have, like, my— progressive friends saying, no, some things are worse than others. And I get that. Yeah. Um, but I'm talking to just more like common grace with people of just like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, I'd still, I'm not going to like cut you out of my life or be overly angry about that. Right. Um, I think exploring that anger that people have when someone doesn't agree with you is, is important because I think it says a lot about us. Like what's triggering that? Um, what, why am I so angry that you... Are spouting off these other things, right? Um, and I think there's some something there.
0: Yeah, oftentimes it's projecting. At least for myself, I was just I had a conversation uh, the other week with a uh, this philosopher. You you might know who he is. It's, his name is uh, Massimo Pilucci. Mm. He's an Italian born. Uh, he's a professor now at a uh, University College in New York. Super fascinating guy. He's big into Stoicism. Oh yeah. So we yeah. were talking okay. a lot about that, and um, this is like one of the common uh, themes that we kept going back to, which is just this. This notion that, you know, a lot of what enrages us or makes us emotional comes from something that we've experienced or done ourselves or feel that we're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's so many times that <laughs> I, I often um, like there was this cat, this kid. He was like 23. Apparently this happened last week in the news. Uh, did you read this whole story about the Z burger where this kid, um, mm-hmm. his agency, I forget what it was even called. He had an ad agency, 23 year old ran social media for this company called Z-Burger, and he basically tweeted out this, from the company's page, the Z-Burger company, tweeted out this horrific uh, meme, and the meme was of ISIS beheading the journalist James Foley. Did I, you see this? I,
1: I vaguely recall that. It was in national
0: news, but you know how that is. It's like kind of like on the sidebar of like everything else going mm-hmm. on on a day-to-day basis. So anyway, this, this whole thing blew up, and this kid came out, like, apologized, was like, oh my gosh, like, I have no idea who on my staff did, like, it was, it was the social media manager I just hired, and he kind of had, like, the whole story, like, a lot of it didn't really make sense, and there was definitely some lies and some sort of, you know, company cover-ups, like, he was trying to paint it a certain way to, like, make, cover his ass and all that. So, it was hard, it was really hard to judge the story based on the information that you were given, because none of it really seemed. Then he did this, like, three-part video series on his Twitter where he was apologizing, and, like, It was six minutes and five minutes of it was, like, self-promotional. So it was really, like, kind of just cringy. And, like, Mm -hmm. he got ripped in the comments and people. um, And he seems, like, a lot of, like, what he was um, putting out there, it seemed like he was trying to be genuine. It seemed like he was a very um, passionate, excitable, extroverted type of guy who was just, like, I made a mistake, I'm gonna be better for it, my company's gonna be better for it. Like he he made a lot of it focused on himself and like mm-hmm. his own company journey rather than like the trauma right. and the, the
1: yeah. mistake
0: itself, which was awful. So rightfully he got all that heat and I got livid when I saw this and I was freaking out and I was writing comments about it. And I made some posts about it. I actually went back and deleted uh two of the posts I made because like an hour or two later I realized like how much of, of like they came out of rage. You know, like in the moment. And then I started to like extrapolate from that and realize I like my personality, like who I am would at one point like a few and even still maybe in the future. But like especially I can say like a few years ago at one point would have been more than capable of coming out with the exact same type of statement. Like as as I started to think about this more, I was like, yeah, I used to think like that. You know, this kid's 23, and he's not, like, a kid. Obviously, he made a mistake. and He's an adult, and he has to take responsibility. But the way he was, like, pushing this apology, like, the whole thing was so about him and... The more I thought about it, the more I thought, wow like that 's actually something i 'm entirely capable of, and it really triggered me, and it made me realize like that 's probably why <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was something to do with it mm-hmm. at least you know like obviously it was wrong, so there 's like that part of it too, but that 's definitely like the driving the but, engine underneath but it But
1: when you say that, you know you say it 's wrong, and that 's how that did that i 'm thinking of uh, there 's a philosopher, Simon Critzley, who has a book called infinitely demanding and it 's this ethical framework basically of understanding that. Things out in the world just emotionally prompt different things in us. Mm. And, like, understanding the nuance there that basically uh, maybe a lot of our ethics comes from when you're presented with a situation, you have an emotional response that in that moment creates a demand on you. You feel a demand to respond in some way where if if that situation was presented to me, I would not feel the demand. It it wouldn't demand my attention. And that the thing I would then naturally not want to just take responsibility for. And so understanding that, like, yeah, it was wrong. uh, But we also you can say that in an abstract sense. But what is an appropriate emotional response to those things? Yeah. And I think sometimes we just like have like outrage culture. and, And it gets personal, too. Like with my wife, we had to walk through this where something would happen and I wouldn't get really flustered about it. And she translated that as I didn't care. Mm. Like even like one of my kids getting hurt, she's like flipping out. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, how do we take care of this? And then she was so angry that I didn't care. It's like, well, no, I care by getting into like fix it mode. Right. And I get into just like crisis. I will handle this. We'll walk through it. We'll do that. And then later I'll emote and do all that. Totally different response. Yeah, it's a different response. Yeah. And so we just have to be careful. I think that we don't label ethical or unethical certain emotional reactions to things. Right. So that, I think that's important. I get
0: into that with my fiance too over the topic of veganism as a whole. She is very. She's she's a vegan and she's hyperly. Um, emotionally tied to the ideology, so it's not just like the there's practice. certain people. Yeah, yes. there's certain people that I know who are vegans who are just practical, ethical vegans in the sense that they know it's you know it helps the environment. It helps. It's, it's better for like just the broader. Um, like betterment of, of living creatures and mm-hmm. all that. So like there's this sort of pragmatic view of that ideology, whereas hers, it's very close to home. So it's both it's both, obviously. Right. It's not that's like right. it's, it's not, not like she doesn't care. Like yeah, it's not yeah. like that's an abstraction to her. But when it comes to like even the smallest ways of making that difference, whereas for me, I'm much more pragmatic. So I'm like I call myself a fleegan whether like I eat a majority vegan diet with her, but I'm not as like just tied to like the absolutism of it. Like if I'm at like at my family's house and my dad makes something like i'm gonna eat it probably and that, mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's right. like and, yeah, and not yeah. every time like it's just kind of like i balance that in my head like what am i mm-hmm. i'm, I'm kind of dealing in that tension all the time but needless to say it's more pragmatic for me it's not as like when i see a steak or when i see a piece of chicken it doesn't do the same thing to my brain that it does to right. her brain on impact which really i i kind i kind of want to hear your thoughts on this like i don't want to i don't want to like get us in any trouble like but but i kind of do but i want to hear i want to hear your thoughts on like just how we use the word privilege and how people like navigate the usage of that word because i think a lot of what you just hit on there kind of ties back to that where there's certain senses of okay so like intersectionality is a big one right now like there is competing um areas of social justice where there's one category, so say we need to focus on um, black rights and in the institutional systems that we have right now, and there's women's rights, and there's trans. Like the list goes on and on. We go to veganism. We can. It's literally an endless list of different. Groups of people, whether it's their race, their gender, their ideology, and they each come from a different framework. Whether that's where they were born, whether they were born in an inner city area, or maybe they were born in an area where there was just immense poverty and like there's like what do you call like an old coal mining town? You know what I mean? So like depending on where you're born and the framework you're given and the people that you grow up around, like you're going to have these different issues that touch your heart and that really hit home. So when we use the word the term privilege. And how, like, it it can be used either to weaponize when someone says, check your privilege, which sort of dismisses the other person's viewpoints based on those biases. But then we can also use it in the sense to say, like you just mentioned with your wife a little earlier when, you, when I brought that up and I said, well, they would say your wife is privileged. And you said, well, maybe she is. And I think that's an important way of using it in this context as well because we can say, yeah, I have – Privileges A, B, C. We can we can be honest with ourselves about those things going into a conversation, and then that's the, the conversation can evolve from there. So, like, how do you, when talking about moral outrage, like when talking about like a specific thing, how do you navigate the usage of that word? Huge question. I Man, know.
1: You, you went like there's a lot of over questions the place. in there. <laughs> um, you know, I think within privilege itself. I would just for me, I would recognize that like with with my wife. I mean, I recognize I have a tremendous privilege in Mm -hmm. so many different ways. Um, I think the more interesting conversation is, okay, what do we do? What do we do with it? Exactly. And yeah, yeah, so I think there's I'm just thinking of some friends of mine that I have that would be African-American or gay. And just like I think that goes a long way of just like, hey, I get it. Like, yeah, I'm I'm privileged. I have not experienced the world the way you've experienced the Mm -hmm. world. Um, like what, what can I do? What can I do with that? Like it's, I think of like a different, a few different approaches. What are ways in which I can, if, if my lowering my privilege actually increases your opportunity, how, how, what's a good way of doing that? Yeah. Or if my privilege could be used in a way to platform or bring awareness to other things, how, how might that work? Um, so I think those are, those are good approaches for that. Um. It's just, you know, I I don't know what else to say about say about privilege, and I, I don't actually know what the debates really—I don't know what, why we're so angry about some of that stuff. I think it's because it gets weaponized.
0: I think that's how people feel. Like, we're talking about the other in this situation. That's why it kind of gets sticky, which is why I'm interested in more solution-based ideas. Cause I think the acknowledgement in what you just said, if you were to frame exactly what you just said with different language— I think you'd have almost total agreement on the other side Mm -hmm. of this debate. You know what I mean? Like If you were to say, like, oh, I don't understand your experience. I will never understand where you're coming from in all these these ways. Mm -hmm. I think it's the way that the word privilege is used. Yes, It comes off in this weaponized rhetoric that Mm -hmm. makes people, certain people feel from the privileged class primarily. It makes them feel that they don't have a voice and that they can't partake in these conversations. So that's what's interesting to me it's because i get or, or the,
1: i would say too the only thing i would say is it also invalidates their struggles exactly and i think that's really painful for yeah. like the working class to say you're privileged because you're white and then they look at their life and say that right in my mind does not mean i'm pr- like it's been hard yeah and i my family was poor and i think that was a lot of that the, you mentioned the coal mining towns and that's like there's definitely a strong narrative of like, how dare you call me privileged? But, but I agree, but I think it's just a misunderstanding of what we mean. Yeah, it's like pushing the, the
0: rhetoric. I feel like th- I think about this with my dad all the time as an example, because my dad's a pretty staunch conservative. In his perspective of how he would put put his views out there, he's not party line as much as he used to be. He's much more rogue sort of in that yeah. sphere of beliefs. But his entire life growing up, he grew up poor. Poor parents got into a bad scene through his teen years. And built his own company through his own means, even with a bad record and all that. So I can expand on any of that at a different time. But he had his own set of struggles to where he is. So when he hears that type of someone like him, hears that type of language, it's exactly what you just said. It's the exact same thing where it's like it feels like how dare you? Like I've worked so hard my entire life to get what I have. So it becomes such a strange thing moving forward cuz I feel like I really feel like that word is one of the like wrenches being thrown in the the spokes of the bike right now that is really disabling sort of the intersection between different parties being able to communicate these basic ideas like that basic right. idea that you just said about not understanding the other it's, it seems so basic like how are we not able yeah. to do that but yeah. I think it's because we've just weaponized the rhetoric in a way that makes it really but, yeah.
1: Well, and, I, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, and it's the the thing just to kind of caveat it for my progressive friends. And I do understand, of course, that it's punching up, that it's like it's they're using it in a way that, of course, they're not trying to be nice. They're not trying to be understanding. Like there's that whole angle of it that I do try to get because I'm not I do have a privilege in a way where I won't understand why certain people feel the need to weaponize it, so just insane that I, I I'm trying to understand that better. But
1: go yeah, ahead. well, and I I think that's a, a good point. I I forgot what I was going to say a minute ago, but I would say, I for me again for me it's just practical. Like I want to support. Like what's the end game here, mm. and then what's the best most strategic way of doing that? And I think that's that's important. Um, and I think for some people that can be dismissive, and and I get into trouble with that sometimes because like I'll say things like. And, and I've learned, I don't say this as much, but someone's, like, ranting about something, and I'm like, w- what, again, it comes back to, like, what's the gain, the goal of this communicative act? Mm. Because if the goal is to persuade someone, I'm just letting you know it's probably not going to work. Like, that's just yeah. not a good approach. If it's to emote because you feel an adjustment has been done and you feel emotional about it, okay, that's fine. I'm just pointing out that if that was what you're trying to do, it's probably not going to work. Right. But, you know, by all means, do what you need to do. So... Um, oh, I remember what I was going to say. I, you know, when it comes to this privilege thing, too, it comes back to the idea of prob probabilities. And I, I, I've just seen a lot of when I look at kind of ping pong, my conservative friends and my more progressive friends. It's like a lot of times my progressive friends are making systematic arguments. Mm. And then my conservative friends are anecdotally dismantling Personal the system. Yeah. Yeah. Personal Yeah. Personal experience yeah. versus yeah. systems. And I think that's um, I, I wouldn't put it at all left or right i just think some people and i wouldn't make the distinction it doesn't it's not by lines or anything but some people just think more that way they think more uh, particulars and anecdotes and experience and some people think large swaths of data and systems and percentages and that sort of thing and You can
0: swap it totally when it comes to police violence or, like, like the topic of, you know, police brutality exactly. and all of that. Like, yeah. it becomes much more anecdotal on, like, the generally speaking on the left side of the spectrum, whereas on the right they're just like, well, look at the data, look at the data. So, there's yeah, a lot funny. of that. Yeah, it's funny how it, it goes. Yeah, it like can depending on the issue. The like issue. Can, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: But I think, it's, I think that's really important because sometimes, again, they think that they're, like, dismantling each other's arguments, but they're actually on a different plane. Yeah. Like... Okay, I'm making a systematic statistical observation and you're giving me an an anecdote. Mm. Those are not mutually exclusive. Those can both be true. So in general, white people can have this sort of privilege in, you know, educational systems, let's say, and yet you can have a story where that wasn't true. Right. That can both be true. Yeah. And I feel like that for me is – that's where I get frustrated where I'm just like, those that's – you're you're not disagreeing, yeah. actually. You just think you're disagreeing.
0: I think a lot of the people in the upper echelons of media are very savvy to that. So I think they understand then if they can find those exceptions, if they can find the case of, like, the disenfranchised white person in this neighborhood or whatever it is, it's all highlighted. People, like, depending on what your narrative is and media bias, you look for those exceptions to promote yeah how just how all yeah, it'll other get side popular, yeah. yeah that's yeah. how you get popular. I'm interested to know, like kind of just going off of a lot of the broader stuff that we're talking about here, like the way it's framed, you and I had this conversation last year, I mean two years ago, I forget when it was exactly. We were talking a little bit about the over overarching topic of truth, but also in how you understand it through your evangelical framework. And I'm interested to know for people, because like I said in the beginning of this, I think a lot of people when they hear words like God, religion, et cetera, they kind of check themselves at the door, whereas I'm interested to know why why do you maintain that framework and can you get into how you see yourself from the outside looking in, I guess, when it comes to like what you believe and how you um, live in that community?
1: Yeah, I don't want to get too abstract, but I think it's helpful to say... I, I think that we all play language games, um, which is, if in philosophy, it's like a technical term. It's not just like saying we're playing games with our language. Mm-hmm. It's saying that we all grow up with certain rules for how we communicate. And, um, and there's yeah, a certain language that we then, I think of it like a, a skin, right? Or like a, a phone case, right? So we all, we, the reality is kind of like the phone. And then we all put like different cases on it. Um, and I would call that like a language game. Mm. And so we have to – we all don't have a choice. We're all embodied people, cultured people in certain contexts. We all have a language that we use to talk about these – that we're trying to palpate toward these fundamental realities that we – you know, language in that sense gonna gets in the way. Like yeah. we fumble over it because we can't get beyond it, right? So Derrida will say things like there's nothing outside the text. And all he means by that is, no matter how much you want to get to reality, you always have to filter through language. Yeah. It's just how we're built, and that can be frustrating. And, but but the the opportunity then is well, we we can pick the language game. Like what or what are we going to use to communicate about reality? And for me, it's convenient and easy and important and helpful and rooted and grounded and traditional for me to use Christian language. Mm. Um, and I think that's really important. And there's a deep truth to that. So. Um, so that, that's why it's, that's the language game that I understand reality through.
0: Yeah. I think some people, I mean, I know you're just off the bat of that. I know you would never say, just judging by what I know of you, I know you wouldn't say that that's required for anyone else. You're not trying to push that, that, um, structure, that this way that you view the structure that you live within on anybody else. Mm-hmm. But I think people are interested in that in the sense that you know, what are, like, when you look at the broader topic of, like, secularism versus religion, that's one of the things that it always comes down to. It's, like, the sort of evangelizing of ideas. Like, people are always interested in, do we want society to move forward in a more secular way, more scientifically minded? Or, if some, in some people, science, scientism, that's, like, what they kind of lean toward, you know? So, people are looking for, like, the different ways we all to move culture forward. So, I think, like, what, like, what are some of, in your mind, like, the most innate, uh, values within the the Christian tradition, particularly that for anyone on the outside to help them to understand why you would choose to like stay in the label. Cause it makes sense communally. It makes sense. Okay. You grew up in this community and mm-hmm. it makes sense. This is the religious text you were raised in. So you have a good understanding of it, which I share that with you. But I think from the outside, people often think, well, why wouldn't you just grow up and get past it? Like, why wouldn't you just? You don't well, need it anymore. I, I right? mean, I think
1: most people though uh, have a very anemic and uh, short-sighted understanding of the history of the Christian tradition. Mm. So, when say grow up and move past it, like, what do you? What do you mean? Yeah, like espouse most most worldviews of, and I can find a Christian saint or theologian or you know, someone in the church who's probably said the same thing. Right. So it it just, we, you know, we take, it's it's the same thing we've been talking about. Like we absolutize or overgeneralize when there's just so much nuance. Like there's infinite nuance, you know, like I was saying, there's reality and then we we always cookie cutter it to fit what we know. And I think most people like, you know, you just don't, you don't know the history of Christian theology. So what you're really saying is, why wouldn't you grow past my understanding of Christianity? And I'd say, well, maybe I have. I don't know. I don't right. know what your understanding right. of Christianity is. So. Yeah, then it becomes semantics
0: <laughs> of, like, what do you mean by God? Like, yeah. what do you mean by Christian? And what we do you can mean? go down
1: that road forever, yeah. which is interesting, and it's fun for me. Yeah. I like it. Um, so I just don't know what people mean when they say, like, oh, well, like, this God who interacts with—well, what do you do with the apophatic, the apophatic mystic fathers who were clearly in the Christian tradition— but would say, well, yeah, God doesn't interact with us. God's the great mystery, the great unknown, the being beyond yeah. being. Okay. So that's, that's, that is Christianity. Yeah. That's there. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think like how much of, like, within that understanding then, like, how much do stories play a part in all this? Kind of as a big theme within a, a lot of, um like, what you talk about, a lot of what Pete talks about, where there's this sort of— um deeper deep, it's almost like a, not. i don't want to say it's entirely rooted in like joseph campbell or like um, mm-hmm. archetypal understanding it's not entirely that but there's definitely that feel to this understanding of religion that is heavily based on storytelling and the value of a story so like how much of that ties in to like this belief structure
1: well stories are nice because they're porous um and that's helpful because then we can infuse meaning over generations right yeah as as structures change and as things change we can we can change the meaning of a story yeah, easier, I think you still can do that with didactic things and lessons learned and the other things mm-hmm. um but stories are just are particularly good structure for yeah, if you want things to last, if you want uh, teachings to last a long time, tell it in a story because they are just naturally uh ambiguous.
0: Right. Yeah. It's I, I always think it's uh, my fiance is obsessed with Harry Potter and nice. she follows like all the Harry Potter podcasts and all that. And there's one that is an actual like they I don't know if it's actually uh, I think it is an official religion of Harry Potter. Have you heard wow, of this? No. Mm-mm. Yeah. Like a group. It's like a podcast group made this and like they literally it's called this Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, I think. And they literally oh, do... Oh, I know that podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, so like yeah, they yeah. do like a weekly thing where they go through the text, and it's obviously much of it's satire. Much, it's not like a... It's sort of like Satanism. You right. know what I mean? People yeah. look at it from the outside, you're like, oh, that's crazy cult. like. But really, it's a lot of mischief and just fun and lightness so it is interesting though because you look at stories like that or like lord of the rings or whatever kind of mythological tale they a lot of them carry that same weight as the biblical stories when you look back because they last longer than if someone were just to write some literal factual account of something that no one cares about like Mm -hmm. if you and i were to sit here and just go through you know like the factual events of the assassination of like john f kennedy or martin luther king jr like these are things on paper if you were just to read it It's not that enticing, but when you actually tell the story and you have the perspectives and the biases and the enunciation and the the hyperbole and all that tied in, like, really... It creates something cool for people to latch onto and want to remember. Yeah, so. I,
1: it makes me think of this quote. I, I've never actually found it, so I should probably stop attributing it to Jacques Derrida. But <laughs> uh, I've I searched a few times. I'm sure it's there. But he, he kind of has, and I'm going to butcher it because I don't know what the actual reference is. But it's a nice, it's a nice concept. And he says, uh, you know, facts are what's there if everyone dies, and like he says that in a way of saying they're don't they're not that interesting. Mm. Like that's that's what you get if every human died. Yeah, that would be you know. Reality's still there. There's the facts. That's just not that interesting. So stories are a human thing. Um, And and that makes it interesting. So we tend to like hyper elevate facts as like the most important thing. And I appreciate that quote because it's sort of like dethroning that. Like, okay, facts are good, but maybe they're a tool for something else rather than just the end in itself.
0: Well, that's a huge pop culture debate that's been happening recently. Like I remember like it was like a year ago or so. Uh, following semi closely, I'm very critical to even mention these two because in following them, I'm, I try to stay critical of their their public presence. But uh, Sam Harris had done a debate with uh, Jordan Peterson, which wasn't meant to be a debate, just kind of stirred like internet fumes from like this whole what is truth type of thing. Whereas Jordan Peterson, for anyone listening who doesn't know, which you probably know at this point, like he's very notorious in uh A a Canadian psychologist who's gone viral the past couple of years, but a lot of what he didn't necessarily go viral for that is like an undertone to a lot of what he believes is like heavily based in mythology and using storytelling and um, Jungian archetypes to explain reality. And a lot of like dark, like it's sort of a. It's like a combination of that and, like, the Darwinian, like, Mm -hmm. evolutionary model. Just, like, truth is what furthers human um, existence and the the benefits of, you know, evolution and all that. So, needless to say, that was sort of the point, perspective he was arguing, whereas Sam Harris was arguing the more of that, like, the more epistemological, like, the the facts of, like, what reality, like, what we can call truth. So, it's interesting how, like, that's not something personally i mean personally i'm similar to you in interest you're more prof- obviously a professional in this field i'm more just oh this is interesting to me i can talk about what truth is what reality is and all that but it's not something generally speaking that people would have ever given two shits about a few years ago but now that you have public figures talking right. more and more about these things you see it how and how it uh actually influences like the debate between different political parties and ideologies so i'm interested to know like how like when you're like you're writing this book mm-hmm. right now on truth what is like your starting point when you're explaining what truth is and like how how do you get extrapolate that within yeah. your your well, work well
1: it's funny cuz it ties right in with what we've just been talking about and that is the my fundamental thesis is we just mean different things when we use the word truth just like i think Sam Harris is using it in a different way than Jordan Peterson's using right. it and then they're just going after each other trying to compete over different definitions which seems not that fruitful. Yeah, it's like, a big waste it, of time. <laughs> it seems like you could just say yeah, you're both true in a lot of ways and you know, like you're both right in some ways. And so what we're dealing with and I just I was listening to this the other day because I'm a big nerd, so I listen to like analytic philosophy and different things in my car. And just the history I was listening to kind of the history of truth in in philosophy particularly mm-hmm. and and just like these mathematicians find like Bertrand Russell and these guys, they get so fed up and they just say like if we want to know what things are, we actually have to stop using English. And so they get, you know, the analytic philosophy uses symbolism, like a symbolic logic. Where now they're like taking English or language in that sense, the syntax and the grammar of a particular language, they call it like the common tongue or whatever. And then they have this like abstract language that they have to wow. use to to do these mathematical logical things for with arguments because. Language is like language is sloppy that's what makes it beautiful yeah. is it's messy and you can use words with multivalences so you can use words that have multiple meanings like truth and that's great for society and culture and meaning and a robustness and all these things it makes you know the the plays on words it's it's like what makes hip hop great and these things the problem is if we're trying to get specific and accurate about what we mean by things it's terrible yeah. <laughs> so all, all that to say is I think we just have to come to a common understanding of saying, well, when you use truth this way, you mean it in that way, and when I use truth... So that's kind of, for me, the thesis of the book at, at root is saying, are there at least a few of these we can pick out and say these are the most... probably the most... Uh, from a popular level, this is the most uh, popular ways we use truth. And if we could just at least... and I'll tie it to the Bible, of course, um It'll be more, more specific, I think, around the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talking about, like, is the Bible true? Well, first, can we just, like, talk about these three different meanings right. so you don't become ships passing in the night, just like yeah. you're talking about with privilege or whatever it is. So what so, are the
0: three different meanings? Do you want to get into that or do you want to save that for your book?
1: So, No, I already did a podcast on it. Okay, um, cool. So it's, it's truth as fact. So it's, it's the Sam Harris. Maybe I'll use that. It's the Sam there Harris model. Yeah, yeah. And then truth as meaning, uh, which is more of the Jordan Peterson, I think, model. And then uh, I end by talking about truth as wisdom, which I think is different because I think the Bible points to this. I think a lot of uh, religious traditions do, and it's hard because it's the only one that's not a noun. It's an adverb. So it's not truth as uh, any sort of mental assent mm. or fact or state of affairs. It's living truthfully. It's an adverb. And I think the Bible actually is much more interested in truth as wisdom pushing toward you. John does this a lot. First John in the gospel of John, but I think first John four or something like that. He says or third John four, something like that says, this is the, my greatest desire for you is that you walk in the truth. Mm. So it's it's that walking in truth. Like, what does that mean? Like that's a metaphor is what, what that is. And that's awkward and ambiguous. Like walking in truth. What, what does that mean? But the idea is this adverb. Like, are we, are we living truthfully? Yeah. And so that's where I would put like truth as fact is a tool. Um, Truth as meaning is a tool toward this truth as wisdom, toward a life of truthfulness. Um, And so it's not that those are bad or wrong or anything like that. It's just a matter of a certain worldview. And I think Christianity is one where we kind of dethrone those first two and say, it's great, but those are means to a bigger end here. Right.
0: Yeah, I don't want to. I want to open up an entire can of worms as we're winding down. I'm just trying to think of like for anyone listening on the outside of a lot of this, you know, like and how and how you use those definitions then to interpret, say, the Bible. Right. Like, how would you like just give some like really basic examples, like between like like factual, oh, yeah. metaphorical, like kind of yeah. going through it. Because that, that's one of the. It seems really basic to anyone who's. I shouldn't say anyone, but to most people who Mm -hmm. have deconstructed uh, the religious, whatever upbringing they had in some capacity. But I think for a lot of people, they get stuck on that that literalist um, angle where they think like, right. oh, like all Christians think, you know, these things in the Old Testament, they had to have happened literally and that Christians believe it and endorse it. So like, can you kind of get into just a couple of like, basic usages?
1: Of yeah. It? Yeah. So the Bible, you know, if it's it, talking about truth as fact, so we ask the question, is the Bible true? And well, what do we mean by that? Well, one thing we mean is, is it factual? Is it factual? And we say yes and no. Right. Like the Bible has some really true facts in it and the Bible has some not true facts in it. Then you ask the question, well, was it intending to have it be true facts or was it not intending to have it be true facts? Mm. And the answer is yes and no for all of this. Like it's just (laughs) that, you know, the book isn't a monolithic thing. So when we say, is it factual? Take Genesis 1, 2 and 3. Those are easy examples. You say, is that uh, is that factual? Um, Well, no, that's not that's not not factual. Um, was Genesis intending it to be factual? Yeah, probably, in in some sense, right? So I just think that's how the ancient world would have conceived of the world. Mm. They would have basically thought it was a snow globe with a metal dome, like a snow globe. Yeah, the firmament, the rakia, which we, (laughs) if you, it's funny, look that that word up in like seven different translations, you're going to get seven different words. Because people are like, what the heck is that (laughs) thing? It was a metal dome that you basically, Genesis paints the world as, A a snow globe dunked in a 55-gallon barrel of water. Mm. So there's waters above, there's waters below. And then we created—God created created the rakia um, to separate the waters above from the waters below so that we could actually have a habitable space. And then he moved all that water to one side so that we had oceans and dry land. So that's how the ancients would have conceived of reality, of fact-based, observable, empirical reality. That's how they thought it happened. (laughs) So— So when we ask the question, is the Bible true, and we're talking about facts, we have to have that conversation. Like, okay, well, let's weigh it against what we kind of know in the scientific community, and how does that square up, and was the Bible right about that, was it wrong about that, and was it trying to be right, or is it not? Um, And then we have the Bible as meaning, uh, which would be always a two-way street. So is it true is a question of, oftentimes we mean, is it meaningful? And that's that's a what dare I say that's a personal, um, it's it's a much more nuanced personal understanding of what we mean by true. So yeah. we can say, do I get meaning out of reading Genesis one to three? Is it true to me in that sense? Is it true for us as a culture? Is it true for this community? Yeah, yeah like there's a lot there, and I think maybe like a Jordan Peterson would like unpack that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so it's like it can be not factual but true in the meaning sense of that term and you know jonah is a great example of that where it's like a lot of people who think the bible has to be factual about everything kind of write off well jonah like the i get people who think that like the the moral of jonah is like oh my gosh god kept someone alive in the belly of a fish that's like the moral of the story when you kind of read it in that fact-based way but when you think about, is the Bible true and it can, what, what are the meanings that it can have for us? And you start to see maybe Jonah wasn't even intended to be factual story. Yeah. It is a parable in that sense. And lots of signs point to that. Um, then we have to ask, okay, what's the meaning? Okay. It's, talk, it's a commentary on how we respond when God is gracious to our enemies, and what, what does that do? It creates a lot of problems and it creates a lot of conversations and it creates a lot. That's a very deeply meaningful thing. Yeah. Um. So it's true in that sense. And then the last one would be, again, uh, truth as wisdom would be this kind of John thing of, uh, are my children walking in the truth? And that's a question that actually jumps out of the text. It It connects our life with the text. Because you can't answer that question with words, and you can't answer that question in the text. And and John actually points to that. I think in First John four eight he says, "Let's not love each other in by talking. Let's love each other in how we act." And that's kind of that point. Um, so he actually says, "Let's love each other in deeds and in truth." Mm. In truth. And so what I want to do is basically say I think the Bible is critiquing our obsession with facts and meaning, and it's pointing us toward this. Hey guys, are you okay? That's great that you're like arguing about facts on your computer all day, but are you walking in the truth? Right. Um, yeah. and so it's the better question is for me in the book not is the Bible true, but are you living a life of truth? Right. I think that's a better question,
0: yeah. Because a lot of people can use like the, the Bible then as a weapon for yeah, that's right. For exactly, yeah. So and right. it depends what it is, too. Like you can look at other mythologies and stories like like say Lord of the Rings as an example if someone's watching that film you're going to go into it one maybe attaching in the, the metaphorical meaningful sense maybe you'll attach to a certain character mm-hmm. a certain way so you'll get that reality as you go through that character's story arc of the whole series you'll get that aspect of it and then you'll also bring to it whatever biases you already have to the story so then how that affects you and how you like I guess add that into whatever truthful way you're living like that's those are two completely different things and then of course if that's in that in that case we already know that's a fictional story so you don't have to worry about the right the, the factual. Yeah yeah. yeah 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 but yeah there's like different it's interesting to extrapolate mm-hmm. the different meanings in a real life context on when yeah. you go through it
1: and I think the, the main thing I would say is it's a fundamental truth that helped me or a realization was meaning is always a two-way street things don't mean anything Right. In themselves, things don't mean anything. Yeah. It's it a meaning. All we mean is that is it's a relationship. Yeah. And so facts can, again, be true whether we're all here or not. Right. Kind of Derrida's point. But meaning is is always a two way street. Yeah,
0: We're projecting it onto yeah. whatever the thing is that right. we're deriving meaning from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. when I say,
1: what does this mean? What I'm really saying is this means this to me. Does it mean the same to you? Yeah. And if we both say, yeah, it means the same, then we can say this is what it means in our language game right. when you and I are right, talking. Right, but if right. you bring three more people in, they say, no, that doesn't mean it's that. It's going to be super complicated it's gonna, yeah, exactly. we're all going to have different meanings That's for the right. word. That's right.
0: So let's close on this, and I'll word it in this way. Why do you think people are so interested and feel such a need for explanation generally? Like why do we need these things to be explained at such a deep level? Like why do you feel this way personally?
1: Hmm. I don't know.
0: Thanks for coming on, man.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thank you. (laughs) No. uh, Why? I mean, we're meaning-making machines. I think, as humans, and so give us more data, and we'll try to make more meaning. I think that's, I think that's a. So it's more like a biological. Do you think it's more evolutionary? Yeah, I think so. We
0: just crave it.
1: Yeah, we we make meaning. That's what we do. We take chaos and we order it. And so the more chaos we see, the more we want to order it. And so I think that's its just part of who we are. We just have so much more content. Mm. And we're trying – our brains are trying to keep up with just an explosion of content that we're not really able to handle. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. we're just like we're, – we're trying to file stuff away like a mile a minute because we're just getting so much input. And, uh, and then we're trying to make sense of it. Mm. and we're trying to put it into coherent theories and i think you know i think evolutionary biologists would say cuz that helps us like survive when we can make when we can control our environment and make it mean things and do that sort of thing so i think it's a survival mechanism and i think we're just we're not equipped to handle this level of content in that way and i think it's scary and i think that just reinforces it whenever we just feel out of control and overwhelmed like we just want to control it more right so
0: so I, I'm actually gonna end on this then, because like you just sparked one one last piece. I think then, do you believe that the most healthy way of being is to live in that tension of constantly wrestling with fi- trying to explain and find meaning and and balance that with just reality, or do you feel? Because I, I feel like for most people, it's it's a safe bet to just settle in. To whatever they believe, and they don't have to think about it. Like we were saying earlier in the conversation, like a lot of these notions of truth, God, uh, certain political affiliations, whatever—they're abstract in the back of their minds. They're settled in, so they're not like they're not acknowledging um, whatever like neuroplasticity their brain might have, and they're just going forward with life as if this is who I am. I am this person forever. And that's the way. So, like, and I feel like for some people, maybe that feels like the healthy mm-hmm. way to be. Because it's like you know, it's, it gives you structure. So, like, do you feel long-term, and since we've been speaking in probability, it's like, we obviously, you can't make a blanket statement, but mm-hmm. from the probability sense, you know, do you think that that, that tension is the best way to live?
1: Well, I, I would be very hesitant to talk about how we ought to live. Um, you know, Nietzsche has this great analogy where he says, different body types require different diets, so why would we prescribe the same moral framework to everyone? There you go. Um, and so... We just are built differently. I think there are some people for whom that is probably the healthiest thing for them. Like, they're not built to think complex thoughts or abstractly, and they're not even wired to desire that or have Mm. a drive for that. And so for me to problematize that for them feels like I'm doing violence to them. Right. Um, And so... It's again connection. Like, can I get to know someone and see what motivates them and where their drive is? Are they stuck or are they happy? I think that's really not to project my own understanding onto them. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe they're not stuck. Maybe they're perfect. I mean, they're fine. They're happy. Um, So again, it's it's that nuanced understanding of I think there are maybe different types of people. Whether you're like Enneagram, you got nine types or twenty-seven. I don't care. I think Mm. there's a finite number. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Of different types who have different motivations and different needs and and i can't i can't prescribe anything for you until i know that like just like a doctor physically wouldn't be like oh yeah i've never seen you but i'll just be based on my physical type i think you should get on this type 2 diabetes medication right it makes no sense and i think morally we just get into trouble when we don't realize that it's the same for people so yeah i would problematize it and say each of us have to kind of figure that out for our ourselves for me i love challenge i love tension i'm always going to be curious i'm always going to be driven to like be no more things and do uh, just who I am. So my question is how can I do that in the healthiest way? Not whether that's okay or not. Yeah. What a nuanced answer. To end the, <laughs> <to end the> <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I mean I'll I'll plug like your info, like what you're doing and uh the podcast and all that. But do you got anything specifically going on that you wanna point people toward or places to follow you or anything?
1: Uh just just uh you know, I like to have conversations on uh Facebook, so I have an author page there. Um and Twitter J Bias on on Twitter so I appreciate the conversations I appreciate the feedback so would appreciate some follows there and then yeah the podcast and book won't be coming out for I don't know a year a year and a half so that's all those things are yeah can, take you, you never know so cool man thanks for coming on yeah thank you.